Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Peter Lindman, who is a leading economist, real estate investor, and professor emeritus of Wharton uh, School of Business for 32 years. He publishes the Lindman Letter, which is a, well, we'll get a little bit into what is would be in that letter every, uh, every quarter. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Fed, inflation, interest rates, and some other interesting things about longevity that you might not expect has an implication on the economy. So Peter, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. So as we like to start on real estate milestones, what is your first milestone in real estate? Um, probably the, it was, a you didn't, I have this view that the most important dates in your life, you generally are unaware of as they're happening. You can look backwards and you go, oh yeah, that was the day I met my spouse or that was the day I met my best friend, but you didn't know it at the moment. So my first encounter with professional real estate was I was probably 31, 32. I was doing corporate advice on Wharton's faculty, teaching finance and economics and a bit of applied Applied statistics. And I was doing consulting work also at Lindemann Associates, which I had started at that point. And I had a client that was in the water heater business and a very good client that was in the water heater business and they were doing a sale leaseback. So I was involved in that exercise, both from the financial side as well as the antitrust side, you know, dealing with the government. But I knew nothing about real estate. I, wouldn't even did a um, sale leaseback of their warehouses. And in a leverage buyout, you're just trying to come up with cash and what can you leverage so you can put up as minimal amount of equity as possible. And so they did a sale leaseback of their storage facilities. And that was really humble as it may be. And I didn't even think about it as a real estate exercise. It was to me at that time, it was a finance exercise. How much money can we tap? What's the lease have to look like? If you tweak the lease this way, does it generate more capital? But that was, um, yeah, that was just, and, and they weren't sexy warehouses, right? This was as I say, sort of probably 1982, let's say it was 40 years ago or something, um, unsexy warehouses storing boxes with water heaters inside of them. (laughs) And and so that was my first introduction. Awesome. Well, it seems like that was a good introduction and it's taken you a long way from there. Um, And I guess that brings us to the present. The first topic I want to discuss is inflation. If you, everyone who reads the news, seeing might still think inflation is a, a crazy beast. Um, there's a lot going on there. I'm curious, what is your perspective on inflation and what numbers do you look at to, to figure out what's going on in Sure, uh, I think it's a 
pretty misunderstood. Um, when COVID hit, and pretty much everything that's happened economically um, uh, in the last three years, in one way or another, reflects COVID and the policies associated with COVID. And um, when COVID hit, demand, as you know, dried up for a lot of stuff, and supply really dried up. What um, water heater company or what company when you don't even know if you can operate your plant, you don't even know, remember malls were not even allowed to be open, uh, uh, elective surgery was not allowed to be open, et cetera. It takes a pretty brave supplier to say, yep, we're gonna go ahead full head and keep our capacity up. So capacity just got slashed across the globe, including the US in almost everything. And you could point out tech in a couple of areas, but by and large, capacity got slashed. Labor got let go. We had 23% of the labor force collecting unemployment insurance. Uh, I think in May 2020, people forget. So supply dried up, demand fell. We recovered. And demand recovered faster than supply. And I'm sure you took an economics course. And it said, if demand grows a lot faster than supply, prices go up. And they went up all over the world, all over the economy. Again, in April 2020, the price of oil was negative. Negative, not, not low, negative. Well, how much oil do you take out of the ground if you have to pay somebody to take it off your hands? Not much, right? So you can imagine oil wells got shut down. I mean, you just kind of go across the world and then demand starts coming back. As demand came back, prices all over went up. Some of them a lot, some of them a bit and almost no prices went down. So if you think about a normal time, what? Maybe if you have a 2% inflation rate, probably 53% of the prices in the economy are going up, 47 of them are going down average it out and you get 2%. We had nothing going down and lots going up, right? And, and that's what the main cause of the inflation was. And you know that because it happened everywhere, not just the US, it happened in Kenya. Kenya didn't flood their economy with money, you know, other places, and yet they got big inflation. You know why? Because everybody shut down supply. I kept saying, as supply catches up, you're going to see inflation subside. The Fed said, well, we think it's because we put a lot of money in the system. Well, they did put a lot of money in the system, but most of it sat in bank accounts. It didn't buy stuff. It just sat in bank accounts, like five trillion of them. They put in six point, I'm doing it from memory, $6.5 trillion, and five of it sat in the bank. Most of it didn't circulate. And money that doesn't circulate can't bid up prices, right? You need the money to circulate. So what happened? Prices exploded. And they exploded from artificial loads, right? When, when during the early COVID, what was the price of an airplane ticket? Nothing because nobody was traveling. So it was easy to get a big increase. Hotel prices were zero essentially, was easy to get an increase that was very big. So the original inflation numbers were quite high. 
It took longer for supply to catch up than I thought. I knew it would catch up. You may remember, what was it, about seven months ago, oil hit 125 a barrel or nine months ago. And people are saying it's going to go to 200. And I said, it's going to be below 90 and probably below 80 by year end. And I think it ended at 79. And it wasn't genius. It's just that at that price, it pays to bring supply back. It was that simple. And all you had to do was look at what happened in the Permian and other places. They shut down rigs. But at that price, you can make money and you expand. So guess what? In November, the inflation numbers showed year over year, inflation was about 6% in the US. And the December numbers showed that year over year, inflation was like 5.3%. But I don't care about a year ago. I care about now. I don't care how my health is versus a year ago. I care about how healthy I am now. And when you look at the November and December data, and certainly as you look around living in the economy, we've had mild deflation in November, December, and January. Deflation, that is prices are lower on average today than they were at the end of October, okay? Inflation is dead, which is to say supply has kind of caught up. That inflation is not down because of anything the Fed did, nothing. And the reason is we know that to the extent monetary policy has an impact, all the research shows it takes six to 18 months. Therefore, the inflation or the deflation we're seeing now, and it's not big deflation, it's like 1%, 2% negative. Um, what you're seeing now had to reflect at best monetary policy in July, August. In July, August, you still had interest rates. The Fed's rate was still in the twos. Well, that's not restrictive. That's not a restrictive number. You don't see the high, high interest rate till November and December after two more 75 basis point increases. That's going to be reflected sometime out there, right, yet to come. So it's all about supply. But if you live in the economy, and you do, you're not paying more for anything today than you did the first of November. You just aren't. And depending on what you buy, you'll find some things are cheaper, like depending on what you did for your holiday shopping, right? Some items were notably cheaper. So yes, some are up. So if we have zero inflation for the last three months, 50% eh, are up, 50% are down. Some are down a lot, some are up a lot. They wash one another out, nothing systematic. This means that if the Fed ever wakes up, which is a big ask, if the Fed ever wakes up, they'll have to cut rates. And the reason they have to cut rates is if you're running zero, why do you have rates that are trying to choke the economy? Why are you waging war on the economy? Now they're gonna raise the rates 25 basis points the next time. 
And people say, why? And the only answer I can give is you were raised in a different time. I went to Catholic schools in the day. I'm 71 years old. And so they just beat the hell out of kids. Some of your listeners may identify with that. And you'd say, well, why did they give the kid 10 paddles and then one more to remember? It's unnecessary, but they're going to do it. And if you think about, no, no, shut up. If you think about it, you can get, after they do that, 5% by lending your money to the federal government for a week. Do you really? Dis- and there's no inflation. So it's a real 5% return. Do you really deserve a 5% return to lend to the federal government for a week? It's not that risky. You deserve, I don't know, 10 basis points, 20 basis points for a week. So they've really distorted things. And they're waging war against the economy. So here we are at a time of labor shortage. We, everybody knows we have a shortage of labor. And their goal is, let's get rid of, instead of saying, let's find ways to get labor back, their answer is, let's get 2 million more people unemployed. You understand how stupid that is? We have people who are productive. We have people who are productive. Remember, every job is producing something like $70,000 of GDP, right? Some more, some less, right? And what we're going to say is let's get rid of 2 million jobs. To what end? To what end? And you go, it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. We want more labor. And in fact, in the last three years, the population grew by 4.7 million people, 4.7. And only 1.2 million jobs were created over that time. Okay? Now imagine a country that has 4.7 million people, but only 1.2 million of them are working. You'd say, we got to get more people working in that economy. Every one of them that works adds 70,000, right? You would be trying to consider policies that encourage people to come back to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess this would, you hit on a bunch of things I want to discuss on the show, but I guess this would be a good time to I want to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on the Fed and how, I guess, it's starting to seem like the Fed is not the reason why inflation is, is coming down. It's they're doing something completely different. I guess, would you put yourself in a camp of Keynesian versus Austrian economics? Would you put yourself in, in a camp or would you n- not necessarily? I, uh, well, I would try to put myself in the camp of intelligent observers. Um, I was a Milton Friedman student. Milton was a monetarist. He wasn't, I mean, he was a Chicago school guy. I went to the University of Chicago. I taught there for a couple of years. Um, uh, Milton famously said, he was one of my professors. I knew him well. He famously said, money is always, uh, uh, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. And he was basically right up to that time. Because, and this is what people don't know, and the reason, he, I was in class and he'd explain why. He said, what are the odds that basically everything in the economy would be in a shortfall of supply, right? What are the odds? And the answer is not very high that systematically 
a normal economy would have everything undersupplied or almost everything undersupplied enough to create major inflation, right? Well, we found something that Milton nor anyone else ever anticipated. And it was called COVID and the policy responses to COVID, which shut down supply systematically across the economy and created systematic demand higher than supply until supply caught up. So I, I agree if, if the day COVID began, I would have totally agreed with Milton. And I'd like to believe that Milton, in light of what happened, would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the exception that we've never seen before. It is supply systematically was forced to get shut down. And that's why. And so I, I find it interesting, by the way, that the people who use Milton's quote about inflation being a monetary phenomena are by and large Keynesians. And the amusing part of that is since I went to graduate school and actually before I went to graduate school, Keynesians have spent their life trying to point out all the reasons Milton Friedman has been wrong about everything. And yet suddenly on this, they're believers rather than looking at the real phenomena going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I definitely, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it feels, I, I, it gives me a little bit of a, a cynical point of view when I see the Fed who's supposed to be there for economic stability, creating the instability that seems to kind of differ from what we've been talking about, which is some, you know, real data points that prove or that show what's going on in the economy. So um, let me let me interject on that, which is dead on. Milton Friedman, basically through his entire career, attacked the Fed because they were supposed to be a stabilizing force. And in his view is they reacted slow, too slow one way, too fast the other, then they'd react too far the other. And he likened it to a teenager driving on ice. And so you and you're under the image that you're under control, but you're not. And you do more harm than good. Now it's unintentionally harming the economy. I'm not trying to suggest the Fed is trying to harm the economy. That's not the point. But I think you hit it. His view would be this, I believe, would be this is one more instance of the Fed thinking they're smarter than the market. And by the time they act, it's too late and they're going to overreact and then they're going to overreact. They were too slow raising rates, right? They were too slow raising. They could have raised the rate to 3% slowly over two years. That might have made sense. But to say, no, we're in no hurry. And then basically in six months, taking it from zero to 5%, I think that's a bit rash, especially after you've told people we're not going to do that. We're going to go very slow. Don't worry. Trust us. And it means that anybody who trusted them once again got whipsawed. And again, I don't want to make it sound like it's not conspiratorial. It's not like this is evil. Right? This is not Darth Vader sitting at the Fed. Right? On the other hand, what I think people miss is they're just people. They're just people. And 
most of them are university professors or bankers. Okay, so fine, you ran a bank. Does that make you an expert in setting the price of money? You're a university professor who, you know, you took a macroeconomics course, right? And I'm not picking on your professors. Did you feel at the end of that, that they are omnipotent? <laughs> Absolutely right? not. And by the way, that's not to say they're not smart. Well, suddenly if they get appointed to the Fed, they're omnipotent, uh, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm always um, skeptical when there's too much power consolidated in, in one location. But I guess something that I've uh, I've thought about was that, I mean, I guess we've seen that interest rates since for, for from 40 years ago have always gone down to the right over time and gone lowered. Part of my anticipation of how the Fed may react would be the federal government doesn't want to serve doesn't want to service their own debt at a high interest rate so why would they keep it up longer than they have to um maybe you have something to say about that but i guess this might be a segue into what do you see going forward maybe in terms of the fed's reaction going forward and then how that's going to infect investments let's bring it to the investment side yeah, well i think i can bridge those two i mean the people who get appointed to the fed are not politicians but they are at least politically interested, right? In, at some level, they're politically connected. So for example, I rightly would never get a phone call and say, do you wanna join the Fed? Because I've never in my life been a member of either party, nor been politically interested or active in that sense, political, right? Well, of course they've got a list of perfectly qualified people with political views. And they're not there as a Democrat or Republican, but they carry views. And if you are, you want somebody who kind of carries views that are favorable. They cannot, even though they say they aren't going to be influenced by what you said about having to service the government's debt and the political strains it puts on and so forth. How could you one ounce of political blood in you? Not to mention, enough bl political blood in you to get you brought to the attention to get appointed to such a position. So I think you're on to something, which is they do not fundamentally want high rates. If anything, they want low rates. Now, it's interesting, at least to me, um, the difference the way the household reacted to super low interest rates and the government reacted. When interest rates went very low, right? the consumer basically locked in long-term low debt with long maturity. The most notable example is um, mortgages, right? And so the typical consumer, 65% of the people own their home, of those two thirds have mortgages. And those people all put their mortgages in place prior to the rise in interest rates. So they have super low mortgages locked in for 30 years if they want it. Historically low, right? The government didn't do that. The government kept their average maturity at about five years. So, you know, Disney and some other companies went out and floated 100-year bonds, not the U.S. government. And you could have an a discussion about why. Um, but it means the consumer is in much better shape than the government in terms of interest rates being high. 
Yes, a young guy like you, if you tried to go buy a house, you'd be faced by a high interest rate. But remember, 50% of all households already locked in their mortgages around 2% or less. 50% of all U.S. households. And then you say there's another third that rent. And then you say there's 15% who own with no debt. I have no mortgage on my residence, right? So the consumer is not nearly as vulnerable as the government because the government has a lot of short-term debt maturing. Now, yes, consumers have credit cards and they're, they're affected. I'm not saying unaffected, but come on, the biggest debt that most consumers have is mortgages, which are locked in at super low rates for, quote, ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that is really interesting. And I think that um, just like intuitively, that would also maybe further restrict supply in the ho housing market given that people are not going to want to give that Correct. up at a high interest rate, which is something Correct. that's yeah, interesting. Correct. And so you can imagine somebody who might live in their home for nine years, let's say, or 10 years. Um, and then they want a bigger home because they had two more kids or they want a smaller home or they want to, you can imagine them at the margin, not all of them, but you can imagine some at the margin going, let's wait another year or two because at the mortgage rate, we're better off, let's, let's save a little more for a couple of years. Now, eventually they'll move. They need a bigger home, they're gonna move. They need to be in a different school district. They'll move, but they'll probably forestall it for a year or two. And I think you're dead on, restrict the supply of housing in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I'm interested to see how it plays out, but I guess going forward, maybe, I don't know how far out you're looking probably as long as you can maybe you say by the end of the year i guess what are you seeing um in terms of how the real estate market will, will look the landscape for investments and and how and how do you foresee activity um and and volume changing in terms so of let's let's focus on commercial well let's focus on single family quickly single family is fundamentally undersupplied for the last uh 13 years we have about a, we have a, 13 years ago, we had a roughly balanced supply demand. NIMBYism has slowly created about a three and a half percent shortfall of supply, um, not equally in all locations. Where NIMBYism is higher, it's obviously a bigger burden and where NIMBYism is lower, it's less of a burden. Um, we have a fundamental shortfall. That is not going to get better this year. It's going to get, if anything, worse because we're reducing housing production this year. So if anything, it's going to get worse fundamentally. Um, I think single family struggles for the first quarter, um, but will do well thereafter. Why? Partly because rates are going to be a complicated situation. If you want, we can go into. But single family home prices are going to go up because it's just undersupplied. It's that simple. And doesn't mean it has to go up every day, but it's going to go up. If you go to commercial, commercial is always a balance of two things. One is rent and occupancy, right? And the other is how does capital mark, how do capital markets value net operating income, right? and future net operating income. So let's take the rent and occupancy. 
that is the economy, right? The kind of economy. Supply is quickly dampening um, uh, because at the current interest rates, construction loans are short-term loans. And at the current interest rates, a lot of projects are being forestalled. So you're not getting as much supply coming on. Um, and, and that will ultimately be good for the owners, right? But it's not good for the developers. Um, you've got on rent and occupancy, though, a battle between the consumer who's in good shape. And we kind of think about the consumer. They're 42 years old. They bought their home six years ago. The home's up enormously in value. They have a 2% mortgage. They've got a job. Their job has had their wage outstrip inflation. If they want to leave, there's twice as many job openings as there are people looking for jobs. Uh, your wealth versus three years ago is 7% higher than inflation. You know, it's not perfect, right? But it's not bad. And you've locked in this low mortgage. So the consumer and the private producer doing just fine. And you can find exceptions. You say, interesting, you point to the layoffs in tech, let's say. You realize all these tech workers so far that have been laid off are finding jobs in three to eight weeks. The employment in the information sector as a whole still is rising, even as this is happening. New unemployment claims have fallen since the tech layoffs have begun. That just gives you a sense of the strength of the private side, the consumer side, if you will. They're doing war with the Fed. So you've got this war of consumers saying, I'm in pretty good shape. And the Fed saying, I want 2 million of you unemployed. And I think the consumer wins because eventually the Fed will see they don't need to wage this war. And the question is, how much damage will they do needlessly in the meantime? And I have to believe in good sense, right? I have to believe I'm not the only one that can see zero inflation. I mean, really? I mean, the, I'm, I'm the only one? I don't think so. I don't think I'm that special. I, I wish I were, but I'm not. And so I have to believe sometime by the end of the first quarter, early second quarter, the Fed will go, okay, we can start easing off they will stop being at war with the consumer. By the way, every time I hear this phrase that the Fed is trying to increase unemployment, my reaction is, well, why don't you lay off some of your employees? You know, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me should be the Fed's motto. And when the Fed says, yeah, we're gonna get rid of 2% of our labor force, I can at least work up a rooting interest, right? But they're not gonna do that, of course not. Uh, they mean those other people. So. I think the first half of the year is a battle between, uh, uh, between a um, consumer in pretty good shape and a government that's trying to make them not in good shape. And by the way, the economy is not overheated. That's a myth. The economy is below trend versus pre-pandemic. If the economy was way above trend pre-pandemic, It'd be different. We have, I told you, we, we only have a million two more people employed with 4.7 million people. That's not, a, that's not overheated. If I told you we had 4 million more employed, 
out of 4.7 million. It doesn't have to be overheated. If I told you GDP was up in real terms, 10% versus trend, it's not. It's 3% below trend. And so, you know, it's, it's not overheated. And then I think good sense sets in. And if you say, why do I believe it? It's hard to argue for illogic. It's hard to logically argue for illogic among intelligent, non-malevolent people. And I believe that they're intelligent and I believe they're not malevolent, right? So, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm a philosophy major as well as a finance major, and I, I don't, I've never found a way to illogically argue against logic. So that makes a lot of sense. But um, I guess real quick, so we have time um, for the lightning round. Um, what asset classes within commercial are you most bullish on? Um, and is there any particular markets you love, and then ones you would definitely want to stay away from? So I'm a long-term, I'm not a short-term player. Real estate's a long-term asset. It's hard to get in and out. Um, I think um, I like multifamily. Um, uh, people have got to live somewhere. As I told you, there's a fundamental undersupply of housing. Um, NIMBYism is not going to likely go away in any near term. That means supply will slightly lag demand system systematically, slightly, not totally. Um, it means that, um, I, I, and I like the fact that Freddie and Fannie are there from a capital markets point of view. Industrial has fundamentals of, of, of um, demand that are good. The simplest variant, the simplest reason is that if you buy your shirt in a store, it takes one third of the amount of warehouse space as if you buy it online. And that's wider aisles, individual packaging rather than pallets, more trucks needed to send out individual boxes than, you know, and so forth. Um, and you can think of it in one way. Did you ever get a package and you go, what the hell is that package that's so big? And inside is a pair of undershorts or something, right? And, and you go like, oh, my God. Well, if they were shipping uh, to stores undershorts, right, they don't have all that air around it. They, they ship a box full of undershorts, right? It's a very different kind of packaging exercise. So that gives you – so I like that fact. I think online will continue to expand, and as long as it does, you have that. Um, I, office is a risk play. Right. I think people come back to the office. I have been on record that I believe they come back to the office. I think they come back to the office because that's where they're most productive. And over the long term, productivity wins out. Um, sure, some people some of the time are more productive at home. I'm more productive some of the time at home. And by the way, those people were working at home already. Right or at least a fair amount, or on the road. Most people don't have the discipline, the work environment, the connectivity, the culture to do it. But I could be wrong. And if people don't come back to the office, that's a major shock. You'll probably have a 20% shock to the demand, one-time shock, and that will resonate on office. 
So right now, office, if you believe, is a great risk play. But it's a risk play. It's a real risk play, which is they may not come back. Hospitality, solid, still has a long way to recover, both domestically. China, China, to give you an idea, China's international outlays for travel and tourism in 2019, uh, international travel, we're not talking about within China, were double the US. And of course, they were essentially zero. And, and now they're starting to come back. So you get a sense of how far uh, the hospitality could go. Um, senior housing, I'm on record saying people can't do math. All you have to do is say the baby boom, people have been saying for 20 years, the baby boom is aging, we need to be in senior housing. I say the baby boom, look, World War II ends in, in um, September um, uh, uh, 19. took a year for them to get married. It took a year basically for them to get um, a baby, you know, that came out of the womb. So you, oh, that's late 48. That's just factual math. There were not many births during the war for obvious reasons. And although England had an upswing from all of our soldiers being over there, that's an interesting study that's been done. But here it's 48. Okay, well, somebody who was born in 48, which is the beginning of the baby boom, is 74, 75, depending when they were born in the year, right? And you go, people who are 75 don't generally go into retirement communities, they're too healthy. So what you still have going into retirement communities are the children born during World War II for the next four or five years. There are not a lot of them. So that sector is still four or five years away from feeling the surge, it'll come. And then, you know, I wrote this book with Mike Royce and Al Ratner called The Great Age Reboot, um, uh, which points out that sometime over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're gonna be massive advances in health and longevity because of genetic uh, engineering. And we outlined some of the research that's going on and it's breathtaking. Um, imagine I could change three DNA cells um, and obesity disappears as a problem, right? Well, obesity and obesity related uh, illnesses account for about 14% of GDP outlays. You go, wow. If we could eliminate it by changing three DNA cells, which would have been absurd to think about 25 years ago. Well, people are really working on this and they've done it with dogs and mice. Now that doesn't mean they're gonna do it tomorrow with humans, but they've done it with dogs and mice. Um, that could dampen the long-term outlook for senior housing because you could imagine somebody having the vigor and so forth of a, of a 40 year old when they're 85 or 90. And there are still such people, there are already such people, but there would be more of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Before the show started, you predicted I might be living to 140. Long as you don't do stupid things, don't do drugs, uh, don't smoke, don't skydive right? Don't get hit by a bus. 
what we call unforced errors, right? Don't make unforced errors and don't do drugs. I mean, and I'm serious in that and don't do um, uh, smoking. And, and obviously there are mentally ill people, you know, the suicide data. Um, if you avoid those, you're going to live, not only you're going to live to 140, you're going to, at my age, 71, and I'm in pretty good shape, you're going to be probably in the shape that you would associate with somebody being about 45 when you're 70, as 75. And unlike the typical 45 or 50 year old, you won't have the obesity risk because of what we were just talking about. And you won't have your joints falling apart because of cartilage regeneration through DNA modification. So you'll even be spryer than they are um, at that age. So you're gonna work, think about it, if you're gonna live to be 140 and you're gonna be healthy and spry, uh, your last couple of years are still gonna be bad, right? I mean, that can, it's like the tires of today lasts about 10 times longer than the tires did when I was your age. One of my first clients was Michelin. And the tires lasted seven to 10,000 miles before Michelin's radial. Now you get 100,000 miles, no brain, no, no thought of it from tires because of the technology. They're not running ball the last 90,000 miles, but the last few days are rough, right? And so if you're going to live to be 140, you're going to work 110 of them. And you say, boy, do I, do I really want to work that long? What else are you going to do? Absolutely. <laughs> school, um, you know, okay, so fine. You still get to retire for 20 or 30 years. Um, but you got to save the money for that retirement. And you're healthy. You're vigorous. Now, when I say work, it could be taking care of your great grandkids. It could, I mean, there's all kinds of work, right? It doesn't all just have to be for pay. It's like saying a house, uh, house uh, caregiver, somebody giving, raising the kids, they're working, right? They're actively working. They may not get paid, but they're working. So when we say people work, will continue working. And that's the image. That's the image. Well, I'm excited for that. And, um, it's going to be a cool, a cool future. Um, to be cognizant of the time, I'll take one question from the lightning round. What's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? What do I want to tell you the most? Well, um, I, I will tell you something we, we were talking about, which is you presumably have a lot of young people listening. And um, a lot of them are rightly so wondering, what, what about my career? You know, and I have two pieces of advice in that regard. One it's a long time. And success generally is an overnight success that takes 10 to 20 years. And so just understand that. It, it's, you, know, you get captured by the tech success stories or the entertainment industry where you can be an overnight success, right? You can be. But most of life is an overnight success takes about 10 to 20 years. And have that as your guiding light. The other is, as you look for positions in real estate or whatever you're looking at, think about it the way you would think about 
uh, trying to get a job in the NBA or professional basketball, which is you take any position. If they called you and said, yeah, now if you're the superstar, maybe not. But otherwise, if they called and said, you know, you're going to be our 11th guy or you're going to be our 15th person down in the development league. And we want you to play shooting forward rather than shooting guard. You're going to say, fine, sign me up. Give me a chance. Let me learn. Let me show what I can do. I believe in myself. And even in the development league on the bench, I believe in myself. I believe I'll show. And by the way, some of the players are going to make it to the pros and they're going to remember me. And when they're looking for somebody, they're going to say, oh, look at me. Or some of the coaches down there are going to become coaches on the next level. And they're going to say, oh, remember that person. Get in the game. Just get a position with any legitimate situation and learn. And you'll prove yourself. And it's, it, and I, I think I mentioned to you, if you're in the D League and 10 years later, you're still in the D League, it's probably not about them. It's about you. And if you believe in you, get a position that people are looking for people who can succeed. Get in the game, do everything you can, learn everything possible, and don't have big pride and, and expectations starting out um, would be my message. And well, thank you for that. having me. I appreciate that. And I hope everyone takes it to heart. Um, where can people find you to learn more about what you have to offer? What was that? Where can people find more about what you have go, to offer? Go to Linneman Associates, L-I-N-N-E-M-A-N Associates. And you'll see about Linneman Letter. You'll see the book. You'll see a program called Refia which is essentially our course on real estate finance and investments, as well as a boot camp for Excel. It's a real good boot camp for Excel. Um, um, you can see about the charity, our 501c3, um, Sam Alimu, which educates children of extraordinary poverty and, back, and, and destitute backgrounds from rural Kenya. Um, and you can see my photo. I mean, that alone is worth the visit to the website. We also have various talks we've recorded over the years there. And so you can access that. Great. Well, I recommend checking that out and listening to any of his interviews with Willie Walker on the webcast or you find the website as well. So um, Dr. Linneman, everyone listening, keep making awesome. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support, and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.